It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And look, here we are in an election year, which feels better to me, right? I have not known how to talk about this stuff. I have not wanted to talk about his rallies and his speeches because there wasn't much to be done about it. But we are at a decision-making point now. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who have voted for him, supported him, hung in with him, we are reaching a place now where the question is different. The question is not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. The question is, do you want to do this again? This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. We're so glad that you are joining us for today's episode. We just have a number of things that we need to catch up on today. So we're going to do that in our first segment. We're going to talk a little foreign policy. We're going to talk about the Jeffrey Berman firing. We're just going to get through some things that we have not had a chance to dive into. And then in the main segment, 
You know, a few of you, just a handful, have expressed interest in our elections here in Kentucky, and this episode is coming out on primary day. So we're going to talk about what's going on in Kentucky. We're also going to talk about the, I don't know, presidential election, the vice presidency. There are just a number of things that bring to mind how important and present that election is going to be. So we're going to hit all of those, and we'll end, as we always do, with what's on our mind outside of politics. We also have some exciting news. Here at Pantsu Politics, next Friday, July 3rd, will be our 500th episode. And you know what? It's been a tough year. It's been a long road, and we're ready to celebrate. And we are inviting you to celebrate with us. We want to hear your favorite episodes, your favorite moments, your journey as a Pantsu Politics listener. So post on social media, tag us, email us, use the hashtag PantsuitPolitics500. We've got some really fun things planned, and I am very excited. I also want to say thank you for your reactions to our Juneteenth episode. We put a lot of thought into whether to do five things about Juneteenth, how to do it respectfully, intelligently, in a way that honors the moment, doesn't take anything away from it. And your responses to that have been very helpful to us. It's been a lot of good information and just affirming in a lot of ways. And we also have decided that we are going to donate the ad revenue from that episode to Black Lives Matter. Now, listen, this is another thing that in my head, it's like, do we share this publicly or not? It's a hard call. And I think that it's important to let you know how we're thinking about these issues to keep the window wide open on our conversations. And also to make sure that we're all thinking together about the fact that a donation is one good step and it's not enough and that we can't write checks on our journey to be fully anti-racist and to meet what this moment in history requires of us. So, But it is an excellent first step. <laughs> it is an excellent first step. And we are trying to take it in numerous aspects of our own lives, including our work. And so we just appreciate all of you and your responses to that conversation very much. Also... It is still Pride Month, and we are still celebrating here at Pantsuit Politics and on our other podcast, The Nuance Life, if you have not checked that out. We try to commemorate the moments in life that aren't the banner events that really get all the attention. So weddings are great, and baby showers and births and retirements and graduations. They are all so important to the journey that we all go on as a human being. But there are other moments, especially as related to the journey of our LGBTQ listeners. And so we're going to commemorate several of those on Wednesday's episode of The Nuance Life. And we hope that you guys will check it out. Over the weekend, we got lots of questions about the botched dismissal of the lead attorney for the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney Office. And we thought we would spend a minute walking through what happened there. It was a little entertaining, if I'm being honest, because the, <laughs> the Justice Department came out and said he's fired. No, they said he resigned. And then Jeffrey Berman stood up and said, oh, no, I didn't. I did not resign. No one told me I did not resign. And, that, and Twitter, of course, erupted. Then... <laughs> The Justice Department was like, no, President Trump fired you. And I think there was a moment where President Trump was like, who's that? <laughs> New number. Who dis? I'm sorry. I found it a little entertaining. I'm being a little flip, but I think it kind of deserves it. 
There are some really thorny legal issues at stake in this firing. So Berman was appointed by Jeff Sessions. Remember when he was the attorney general way back at the beginning of the Trump administration? Jeff Sessions. So through Donald Trump's administration, Jeffrey Berman was appointed to head this office. And this office is a very big deal. It has jurisdiction over some of the most important crimes that are committed in our country. Michael Cohen, all these names you hear. So much of that came out of the Southern District of New York. It's Wall Street. It's mafia stuff. It's It just runs the gamut. Terrorism cases get prosecuted there. It's a very important office. And so... He was appointed on an interim basis, as like everybody in the Trump administration gets appointed, to fill the vacancy there. And under the vacancy statute, that appointment goes for 120 days. Well, at the end of 120 days, we did not have a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney for that office. And so the federal judges in that district voted to keep him on which is kind of weird. And it took me a minute Mm -hmm. to think, like, is that right? Is that how it works? But that is indeed part of what the statute says can happen. And so he's in place. And Barr, in the resignation letter, is acting like he has authority to just fill the vacancy now. But the vacancy statute only applies when someone is not in the office. And Berman was in the office by the vote of those federal district judges. And so that's why he had a leg to stand on. And Barr couldn't just summarily say, well, the president says you're fired. I mean, I think Berman still could have fought that. But what he got out of out of saying, no, I'm going to take you on is switching from the person that Barr wanted to put in his chair immediately to the deputy that Berman had hired and who's been part of all this important work that he's been doing. So I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to this guy for allowing himself to be thrust into the national spotlight this way to ensure that his successor is someone that he trusts and thinks will carry the office forward with integrity. Now, that's only temporary, too, because the administration can nominate the person that they want, but that has to get through the Senate. And Lindsey Graham has indicated that it will not just be sailing through because the person they want to put in the chair has no experience as a federal prosecutor whatsoever. He's just tired of his job at the SEC. So it's a very interesting set of circumstances. And I think it is reflective of the growing discontent among Republican senators over the purge of several legal positions within the administration, the inspector generals, this prosecutor, and The idea that, no, you will not just install loyalists from top to bottom. I mean, it's not even just Lindsey Graham. I think it's a lot of Republican senators who are finally pushing back. The New York Times had a really interesting analysis that's like, at the end of the day, some of this is, especially if you're Lindsey Graham, the perception that Donald Trump is seeing a decrease in his political power. We'll talk about that more with the Tulsa rally. But, you know, this administration has no ability to just read the room. If you already have allies, your allies in the Senate saying this purge of inspector generals is not acceptable, then going after the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York in this particular way was not a wise move. Like, you don't have extra capital. Can you not see that? Why would you spend it here? Um, but I don't think they have any ability to see that. I think that, especially him, if they're if they're acting on his orders, the the self-awareness of, well, do I have extra political capital right now to spend on this is just completely and totally absent from the calculus. I think it's hard for him, meaning the president, to think that way because no one has ever 
shown him that his political capital is limited in the Republican Party. You have a bunch of people in the United States Senate who have, with the limited exception of Mitt Romney and occasionally others on very tiny issues, but you have a bunch of people who threw out a lot of what the principles were supposed to be in order to support this president. Mm -hmm. And when you have everyone playing such a transactional game, you ought to know that at some point you can overplay your hand. Right. Right. Because he's pushed and pushed and that's not happened. I think he has come to believe that the new principle is Trumpism. And that's just not going to be the case. Depending on how bad the polling numbers get, things could change quite drastically for him quickly. That doesn't say anything good about the integrity of the folks serving in the Senate. Yeah. It's also just the truth of what we've learned over the last four years. I mean, I'm not looking to give... Lindsey Graham, a gold star. Uh, let me be abundantly clear about that. I think it is just an indication of the political tea leaves. Their decision making about him up until this point has been political and it will continue to be political. And so them shifting is indicative of the fact that his political situation right now is shifting. And we'll talk about that more in the main segment, obviously. Before we do, let's turn our attention to foreign policy issues for a brief moment, because a lot's been going on in the world. It's been hard to pay attention to because we've had so much happening domestically, and we won't even scratch the surface of all of the things that are simmering around the globe. I don't want to say that too strongly because there are always things simmering Mm -hmm. around the globe, Uh, but there are a few things that are really worth our attention, beginning in England, where there was an attack in Reading in a park. Three people were killed. Three others were injured. This was a stabbing attack that's being investigated as an act of terrorism. And it's really getting a lot of attention in British media right now. I've been trying to follow that because Britain has had a terrible history of terror attacks, especially in London. This hits close to home for me because Chad and I were at London Bridge the day before one of the terrible stabbing attacks took place there. So we're just thinking of everyone in England. We'll keep following this story as there's more of an understanding about what perhaps motivated this attack. I'm sure we'll revisit it. Then, of course, we have seen increased tension between China and India along their shared border in the Himalayans. So this is called the line of actual control. It's got a really fancy name. Um, There's no weapons allowed because it's way up high in the mountains. And so this conflict, which is kind of crazy, you had violence between the Chinese and Indian soldiers with just like sticks and rocks. 20 Indian soldiers died, many due to exposure because of the environment up there. But this does seem to be an instance of China taking their moment, taking the chance to expand the roads leading up there, expand their presence leading up there. You know, India has been hit very hard by COVID-19. It's interesting. I read a lot of reporting that the behavior of the Indian government in the face of this attack is very different than the sort of emotional level in the Indian press. The Indian press is speaking with a lot of anger and intensity, whereas the government seems to be trying to take the the heat out of the situation, because I think that they're... They're taxed right now trying to deal with COVID-19. Their resources are taxed, as are many countries around the world, and China knows it. What's, I think, really important to think about here is that you have two nuclear powers. You know, both China and India have nuclear weapons. You have a history 
in this particular part of the Himalayas, this area called Axe Chin has been disputed forever because it's just not easy to draw lines on a map around it. Mm-hmm. And as Sarah said, it is uninhabitable. I mean, it is like 14,000 feet, which is twice the altitude where you start to get sick. And it's rugged. It's freezing cold. But it has been the subject of dispute between these two countries for a very long time. There was a treaty in the late 90s where they said they can't use guns anymore. So that's why you have to like heavily militarized countries basically in a brawl with one another. But the history also tells India that it is seriously outgunned by China. Mm-hmm. China just bulldozed over India the last time there was actually military conflict in this area. So in addition to everything Sarah said, you know, COVID-19 is a factor on both sides. China is trying to distract from a lot of what's going on with COVID-19. And China is really trying to be that infrastructure superpower. But India recently completed a road that goes through this area as well, an all-weather path to help its troops here. So even as the governments really from both countries are trying to turn the heat down coming out of this skirmish, there's also a report this morning that India has asked Russia to hurry up and ship some weapons to it for this region. So everybody's building up their troop presence here. And this is an important one to keep an eye on. Another really important border dispute that's happening happened in that demilitarized zone area of North and South Korea. So there is a line there that separates the two countries that's very important, that is always tension-filled. And a few years ago, right around that line, North and South Korea built what is like an embassy. They don't have formal diplomatic relations with each other, but they have this building where they do come together to talk. And North Korea bombed it last week Mm. in a, well, an unmistakable symbol that North Korea is finished talking, at least for now. It is upset about a number of things. It is also probably trying to distract from COVID-19 and the way that it has been handled in that country. And uh, it's just depressing because South Korea has put forward a lot of effort to trying to keep this conflict manageable. But North Korea's excuse is that defectors from North Korea, so people who have fled that regime and gotten into South Korea, have been using balloons and drones to drop leaflets over on the North Korean side with anti-North Korean propaganda, like talking about their experience there and how bad the regime is. And that has just really angered the North Koreans. Again, experts think that that is like a tempest in a teapot, that that's a cover for what they might have done anyway um, because of other motivations. But that's the story of why the North Korean government bombed this building. It seems like as we're talking about all these foreign policy issues, Beth, it might be a good moment to address John Bolton's book. The Room Where It Happened and his take on the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy. What do you think? Are you excited to talk about it? Well, I haven't read the book yet. I've read a lot of excerpts like everyone else, and I watched most of his interview with Martha Raddatz. We fell asleep before it was over, which is not a commentary on Martha Raddatz, who I think is an exceptionally good interviewer. 
I have a lot of thoughts about how that was packaged and put together. I did not think the editing of it served her well and did her justice, but I thought she did a good job asking him questions. You know, here's the thing, like the top story as we sat down to record this morning on Twitter is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders has told everybody John Bolton was drunk on power. And that sounds right. But that can I just stop because that little excerpt she shared from her book, which is not an accident, Mm -hmm. was so dumb. I thought the best example you have is he didn't want to ride in the bus. Like I I clicked it thinking, okay, I do want to hear like a fair criticism of John Bolton, like, I want to hear another administration official, sure, say, well, let me tell you the other side of him. And the best they have is he didn't want to ride on the bus with us. I thought that was problematic. I just think everything that comes out of this administration has to be taken with several shakers of salt because (laughs) it, you know, the people who worked in this had an agenda that led them to say yes to working in this. And they're going to have an agenda on the way out. And That's human nature to some extent, and the volume on human nature is turned all the way up on the folks who've been in this White House. I also listen to John Bolton, and I don't hear anything that sounds wrong to me or that sounds Mm -hmm. inconsistent with press reporting or that sounds inconsistent, again, with what the president says himself every day. And I think the priorities of this president are so clear. He tells us in a variety of ways all the time, exactly what John Bolton's thesis seems to be, which is foreign policy is less important than Donald Trump to Donald Trump. Yeah. Look, I don't like John Bolton. I don't think John Bolton is a particularly good person. What I do think is that John Bolton's agenda is not solely personal. I think it's relevant to these foreign policy discussions because I think John Bolton has a very strong view of the world. It is not my view of the world. I find it to be a particularly dangerous view of the world. But I think he has it. And I think he went in there thinking, I'll do what I can to push forward my worldview that these particular regimes are dangerous, that we have a role in taking them out. And so when he gets there and it's a disaster and he sees like, oh, my gosh, this is like way worse than I thought it was. This is a threat to the exact things that I'm worrying about, that these particular regimes are gaining power. Like, I believe all that because I think that's consistent with who he's shown himself to be through many administrations. I agree with you. And his frustration that there is no coherent principle underlying the Trump administration's foreign policy makes a lot of sense to me and shows through, you know, just today we're learning that the Trump administration is planning to take a number of troops out of Germany, which is a huge problem and is getting bipartisan backlash. And again, I think it's that he doesn't really understand why those troops are in Germany. They are not there to protect the Germans. They are there to protect American interests. Again, this is a lot about NATO, and about Russian aggression. But you have to have an understanding of the history of Europe to follow that. And I can see John Bolton just being incredibly frustrated that the president doesn't have that understanding. At the same time, when President Trump says, well, I'm going to pull these troops because Germany isn't carrying its weight, it's not doing its fair share, that is a very John Bolton line of thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. that every country in the world ought to prioritize their military positioning the way that America does and the way that people like John Bolton believe that. Germany has not spent the kind of money on militarization that we have. Germany has put money into a whole lot of other priorities that we don't prioritize on the federal level or in many of our states. So in one sense, the president is right about this. 
And in another, his rightness reflects a very military-heavy mentality that the rest of the world may not share. And if we really respect the sovereignty of other nations, there's a point at which we have to go, okay, they don't. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why John Bolton is really frustrated about all of that. And as much as I disagree with John Bolton on a lot of things, I think he has a perspective that belongs in the room somewhere. We talked about this when he was fired. If I were in the Oval Office, I would want someone who thinks like John Bolton there to like check my instincts at, well, let's sit down and talk to them. Right. You know, that that's there's nothing wrong with his worldview. I don't think it should be the dominant one, but I think it's interesting and important and at least grounded in an understanding of history and the way the world works that the president didn't have. So I get it. And I also get the backlash. And I also think it's important to hear him out. Yeah. As much of an opposite direction as you possibly can go from John Bolton. For our compliment this week, we wanted to share an interview with Rosemary Ketchum, who was just elected to her city council in West Virginia, the first transgender public servant in West Virginia's history. And we thought this interview was just lovely and empowering and enlightening. And we wanted to share it with you this week as our compliment. We are so excited to be joined by Rosemary Ketchum, who just won her race in West Virginia. Rosemary, tell us about where you're from. I don't want to say something that's an intro that doesn't fully capture your city. So tell us about where you're from and your race. Thank you so much for having me. I live in Wheeling, West Virginia. We are in the northern panhandle of West Virginia. And we are a small town of a little less than 30,000 folks. And our city moniker is we are called the friendly city. So I think that's true. I love it. Nice. And you ran for city council. I understand your background is in mental health. And I heard you on MSNBC talking about how important it is to you to have city council oriented to a lot of sort of regular city problems through the lens of mental health. Can you tell us about that? For sure. I think across the country, we are experiencing a mental health crisis that is pounded by so many of the other cultural things that we're going through. And in small towns like Wheeling, West Virginia, that's really no different. We have a lot of mental health issues in our community that also extend to homelessness, which we experience here in the city. So I'm very interested in taking my experience, both as a community organizer, but as a mental health uh, professional, into the realm of politics. I feel like it's something we should have done maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but better late than never, I guess. Yeah, I just read a study or a poll that Americans are basically like at their lowest levels of mental health ever recorded, which I thought right. was pretty I discouraging. Heart. <laughs> so what inspired you to run? I never thought that I would run for office. I never thought that politics was my space. I, I have been a community organizer for years in the state of West Virginia, working on issues like poverty and mental health, LGBTQ plus advocacy and racial justice. And I really loved the idea of being kind of scrappy and underdog and sticking it to the man. But I, I would become incredibly frustrated with the experience because we would make strides forward. We take two steps forward and then take you know one step back. And oftentimes the obstacles that we were experiencing were not necessarily the structural or systemic problems that we see in our state, but the elected officials who were essentially the gatekeepers to what we wanted. And so 
I found it incredibly frustrating having to convince them about all of the things that we cared about, menstrual equity, racial justice, LGBTQ issues. And I came to the realization after joining the Can't Wait campaign here in West Virginia for former gubernatorial candidate Stephen Smith, that it is much more efficient and more fun to replace elected officials than try to convince them. I wasn't sure if that was true until I won my race. What was it like to run during a pandemic and just to be able to talk about these issues in a a fresher way than maybe folks in Wheeling are accustomed to? It was unique, I'll say, because I have participated as a volunteer in other campaigns in the past, both advocacy campaigns and political campaigns. And everyone seems unprecedented, I think. But to have um, been elected and to have run my own campaign in perhaps the most unprecedented campaign season was fascinating. So we knew that we were at a disadvantage here because I was not born in Wheeling. I didn't raise my kids here. I didn't go to high school here. And in so many small towns and in small town politics, that stuff is really important because you know that's how people relate to you on a human level. So I really needed to push past that barrier and do everything I could to introduce myself to folks in a new way. So we, people called us crazy because we started a year early and for city council races, people don't do that. They, if they care at all, they don't run (laughs) uh, more than five months before election day. So we didn't want to take it, take the easy route. And we didn't want to think that we just had it in the bag. So we started a year before election day and my goodness, we started door knocking and hosting events and then COVID hit and we had to scramble. We had no idea what to do or how to re-strategize, but we were incredibly grateful that we started at all because so many of the other candidates had not even begun campaigning. And so, and the petty part of me goes like, ha ha ha. And then the, the more hu- humane part of me says, that's absolutely terrible because there were other candidates, not maybe not in my ward, but also in my ward who had really wonderful platforms and I thought would have also made pretty good elected officials, but didn't get the opportunity because of because of COVID and the quarantine. So we definitely decided to re-strategize and focus on social media, which we had built up prior to that. But it was and still is a, a very odd and unique, but innovative experience. I think we're learning a lot here. What did you learn as you were before COVID hit when you were out knocking doors and then afterwards watching like sort of social media engagement about what your constituents were really concerned about? I had never run for elected office in the past, so I didn't know what to expect. But my insecurities made me believe that when I knocked on a door, I needed to have every answer to every question that could mm-hmm. ever possibly be And I needed the details and the statistics. And if I didn't have a binder that was 500 pages deep, I wasn't trying. And I never opened the binder once because truthfully, you can have the statistics and you should, and you should have the data and you should, you should try that hard. But I learned that folks are really concerned with whether they can trust that this Mm -hmm. person step is honest and vulnerable and able to do the job and that they can be counted on. One of the biggest concerns so many of the uh, voters that I spoke to had 
uh, was about honesty and transparency and accessibility. I thought they were going to ask me about the city budget and <laughs> about what I'm going to do, the minutia of vacant properties or stray cats or something. But the the issues became, if they started at something specific, they always ended on a larger, more broad note regarding trust in politics. And I had some folks tell me they haven't trusted a politician since 1990. And <laughs> there's nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also had folks who told me that you were the first person running for office that's ever knocked on my door. And it meant a lot to them. And it meant, I think, even more to me. So I've learned so much in this experience, just as in my own humanity. Yes, some things as an elected official, if ever I run again, what I could do, should do. But I learned so much that I think impacts my own mental health and my own humanity. How did you talk with people about their views of politicians? I imagine it was strange for someone who's been an activist to be saddled with that politician label as you were having those discussions. So did you find that anything really advanced the conversation? Yes. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a journalist. I admired folks like Ann Curry and Diane Sawyer because I thought, oh, these are the people who are telling the stories and helping people and they're compassionate and and intelligent and I thought for the longest time I wanted to be a journalist. And then I realized that that work, you have to be unbiased. You, you, you should not necessarily be biased and spread your political opinions. And I don't have the willpower or self-control for that. So I thought that's not for me. And, and so when I went into community organizing, that's when I was able to be as partisan as I wanted to be on the issues I wanted to advocate for. And really, I think I was liberated in that space. And so running for office and a nonpartisan office was also fascinating because I had to not shift what I believe, not shift what I advocate for, but the language that I use. And some people might call that calculated or, oh, you're really a politician now. But I find that you should be using the language people understand. If somebody literally speaks a different language to me, I could speak all day and they wouldn't understand. But if I can change the way I speak, if I can change the way that I might frame a conversation, then we can get somewhere. So I'm sure there were plenty of folks who met me and thought, I don't want anything to do with this person. They believe this, 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 and this. But when we would talk about homelessness or when we would talk about vacant properties or the, the local playground, all of that other stuff went away. And we were just two people talking about issues that mattered in our backyards. And for me, on a larger scale, focusing on federal politics is so frustrating. I know we had a huge SCOTUS win, and I'm incredibly grateful, but that does not happen every day. You know, usually it's the long and hard work of it. And that can be really hopeless and make you feel really helpless sometimes. But when we focus on local politics, things can get done pretty quickly. I mean, you can speak to your mayor or your city council on a Monday and see some results by the end of the week. And so... I hope that we have kind of a a new political shift toward the untapped power of local governments. And and for me, it it really helped me connect with the voters in my ward and and learn um, a little more about what it means to connect with with other people on a human level. I think we start believing politics is all about policy, and it of course is. But at the at its base, it's humanity. And when we can figure out how we dig to the bottom of it, I think that's when we really see results. I had a very similar experience when I ran for city commission the first time. It was such a positive way to interact with the people of my town and to get that feedback. 
and if I can offer you some unsolicited advice. Once one, I think the hardest part is that you really lose any benefit of the doubt that you had running yeah. as a first-time candidate. Like the second you step into and you're officially a politician. Yeah. And you're not seeking people out, but they're seeking you out often to complain that you that, then you're up against that politician reputation just amplifies and yeah. expands. And I wonder, how do you plan to keep this momentum? What are your strategies as you move from being a candidate to an actual official? Like what's your plan to, to stay engaged with their constituents and not let that that national environment sort of infect your conversations at a local level? Great question. I've been reading uh, books by Brene Brown. I read the entire Gifts of Imperfection on a plane once. And I always go back to this, the idea that vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity and honesty and connection. And Mm -hmm. if I can remain vulnerable, which is not easy to do, especially when you may be attacked for a position or maybe attacked for not taking a position, that's really hard, especially right now. This morning I was listening to Taylor Swift's You Need to Calm Down because I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) People online. And and I've yet to really adapt to the national attention, although I love it and I think it's it's largely positive. Remaining vulnerable, I think, is going to be really key and and not pretending that I'm an expert on every issue or that I, I know exactly what I'm going to do at every turn. I think that turns people off when they think, and it's for failure. Yeah, definitely. I would rather somebody tell me, I don't really know, but I'm willing to learn and I want to work on it versus being defensive and saying, I got this. I know what I'm doing. Why even question my ability? So I hope to bring that to our local politics and and hopefully it, it saves my own mental health. I think my experience as a mental health professional will help me a lot because I have the cell phone number of every therapist in a 30 mile radius. So God forbid, I, I think I'm set up pretty well. I love that. What would a newly elected councilwoman Rosemary Ketchum say to the Rosemary Ketchum who was considering running for office? Oh my goodness. That's a really, really good question. I would say fear is not the boss. I feel that so many folks who just want to run either never say it out loud because they're afraid or they never even want to admit it to themselves that it's possible because it's scary to run for office. It's vulnerable and you have to be open to criticism and and in so many ways accept it and hope that you can get it so you can be better. I would say to myself a year plus ago, I would say fear is not the boss. I would say tone your hair. It looks brassy. And I would say (laughs) start building your coalition because that is, I think, really what propelled me to not just win, but connect with my community is building a coalition of really, really good people. I don't think you should run for office alone. If you think you can, maybe you can, but it would have been a lot less fun and a lot less effective had I decided to go it alone. Well, huge congratulations. We would love to hear how things progress as you get into the work of it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you to Rosemary Ketchum for spending time with us. And next up, we're going to talk about 2020 elections. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. 
Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Beth, I would like to kick off this segment with what I would like to call a petty precursor. Okay. Okay. A petty pronouncement, a petty proclamation, which is I'm with John Favreau. I think mocking the size of the Tulsa rally is petty. And also, we deserve it because it's been hard. And I was worried. And I do think it's important beyond just the real 
glee I felt as the reports rolled in that it was a disaster. I mean, I f- it felt like Christmas morning. I'm just going to be real honest and vulnerable. Like I was filled with joy and happiness as we learned that this was a massive <laughs> underestimation of the crowd size. And so I just, I'm just going to own that. I'm going to be honest about it. And I just feel like that's that's what I need to put out there as we begin this conversation. Well, having heard that, <laughs> um, I will share that I watched a lot of this um, because I was at my parents' house and the TV was on. My first reaction to the crowd size was just relief because I was really mm-hmm. concerned yep. about yep. a gigantic group of people in Tulsa spending hours inside. It was, you know, the the whole rally was just like conceptualized as a big middle finger to healthcare experts and public health experts. And so I was just relieved that a lot of people took a pass on the invitation to come be around other people shouting indoors for a prolonged period of time. You know, I followed some of the K-pop fans, you know, signed up with fake information and all of that. And my real feeling as I looked at all of that coverage was, you know, we have an entire generation of young people telling us in numerous ways that they have rightly concluded that their elders have failed them. And many of those folks are too young to vote and they are telling us in every way they can with every tool at their disposal, you all have let us down and we are not happy about it. And to them, I say, way to take social action to express yourself. I also am here in the last year of my 30s realizing that I am one of those elders now. And so (laughs) spending a whole bunch of my time and energy cheering on this epic troll proves their point. (laughs) Like, I need to be doing better than just feeling like they really stuck it to Brad Parscale this weekend. Um, And so I had real complicated feelings about the whole thing. Well, I mean, I think it's true. I was relieved because I thought it was a public health disaster in the waiting. I was relieved because it feels like to me, even among Donald Trump's base, that things are shifting and that it is easy to complain about a mask on Facebook or to say in private conversations that you think coronavirus is a hoax when it comes to, you know, when it, when it's time to put pedal to the metal, Oh, wait, I don't really think I want to go and risk things, risk my life, risk the lives of those I love. It, it makes me feel like the reality of coronavirus is reaching depths maybe we were underestimating. So that's I think that was one thing that I was like, thank God. And because I, you know, th- there was a focus group that came out that said nine out of 10 of Trump's voters are still with him. And I thought that does not sound right to me. It doesn't sit. Now, look, we are, of course, we are anecdotal in a self-selective group over here at Pantsuit Politics. But we hear from so many people that say I voted for him and it was a mistake I will not make again. And so I just I thought that does not sound right to me. And I thought, man, if he gets out there has this big crowd and people look like they've not budged a bunt, like an inch from from a pandemic and all this racial unrest. It is going to be really discouraging. He's going to crow about it. I don't want to hear that. And so I was just so relieved, so relieved that surely to God, there are some things that are big enough that it will move people 
even members of his base or sort of the the outer reaches of his base, I guess is what I would say. And also, again, just being petty, the idea that they were doing this rally to get him out of his funk was so offensive to me. And so when it just was a disaster and made his funk worse, there's a lot of me that just wanted to be like, ha, ha, serves you right. I think this affirmed choices that media have been making about him, too. There's so much pressure to just not let him tweet anymore or to block him on Facebook, not cover the rallies, which I understand. And also, I think it's good that the American public saw what he chose to focus on at this moment. Mm -hmm. In his favorite spot in the universe, what did he want to say? He wanted to say, I told them to slow testing down. Now, his people say that's a joke. The fact that they think that that is a joke, I think, tells us enough, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he did not talk about race relations. He spent 14 minutes on his own ability to drink a glass of water. It is so clear going into this election what his priorities are. Mm -hmm. And I think it was good to have this very stark reminder of that. It was interesting for me to watch this because Jane was sitting beside me and I was really nervous about that. You never know what he's going to say. And um, Jane's just getting to the place, though, where I think she can handle it. And I think I can handle whatever the conversation becomes with her. She cannot contain her disdain for him. It just Mm -hmm. permeates her her entire being. But what really threw me, I knew she felt that way, was how often she looked at me and said, what is he talking about now? And the incoherence of the speech was really obvious when you were trying to, like, live explain it to a nine-year-old because she was just like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And there was a moment when he was talking about immigration and she said, what is he talking about? And I said, well, Jane, what he is trying to do right now is tell us, the people who are in this room, we are all white, we are all middle class. He is trying to tell us that we should be afraid of people from Mexico because they are criminals. And she went, what? <laughs> just like lost her mind. And I said, that's right. He is being very racist right now. And you need to know that. And you need to know it's not okay. But just trying to track the conversation with her reminded me again that it's almost it's almost impossible. It's an impossible yep. job to try to cover this in an organized way. Well, I mean, also the answer is always himself. What's he talking about? Himself. That's what he's talking about. Always and forever. He's talking about himself. Not his constituents, not the citizens of the United States. You know, he is talking about himself. And look, here we are in an election year, which feels better to me, right, than it has. I have not known how to talk about this stuff. I have not wanted to talk about his rallies and his speeches because there wasn't much to be done about it. But we are at a decision-making point now. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who have voted for him, supported him, hung in with him, We are reaching a place now where the question is different. The question is not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. The question is, do you want to do this again? Are you up for four more years of this? When you see his willingness to fire every person who holds the government accountable, when you hear him say that it's more important to lift his mood than to prevent even one person from getting COVID-19, When you understand clearly what he's about, are you up for four more years of that? And I guess that's a transition to the the veep stakes, which is the word I really dislike, but it's the only one that we have to talk about this 
you know, analysis of who's going to be Joe Biden's vice president. In one sense, I get that that's monumentally important because of Joe Biden's age and a number of other factors. I'm not sure that it's electorally important at all. We always talk about it that way. But to me, this election just seems to be such a clear referendum on Donald Trump. Joe Biden could say, well, I'm going to appoint Beth's iPhone to be my vice president. And I'd be like, fine, you can have it. And that seems acceptable (laughs) to me when I view my choice, you know? Yeah, I think it's really difficult because no matter what, it will absolutely be a referendum on Donald Trump. It's so funny that you say that. This weekend, I took a picture that I'll post on Instagram of this truck we were driving behind in Southern Illinois. And it said, you know, he had a truck. It's like a, a card of a Ace of Diamonds with Trump in the middle of it. I don't know why the Ace of Diamonds. Maybe some card people can explain that to me. There's These are all custom. There's one in the middle that says deplorable, derelict, do nothing Democrats. And then on the left, there was a big one. And it says, do you want more of the same? If so, go vote. And I thought, uh, um, <laughs> I don't know even among members of his base who would answer after the last few months. Oh, yeah, for sure. More of the same. And then below it, this is the best part. It says, for the man that says it like it is the truth. Now, my husband says that there should be a comma or a dash. Like they meant it. Vote for the man that says it like it is. Break the truth. But again, I think the absence (laughs) of the punctuation really illuminates something. He says it like it is the truth. Yeah, he does. It's often not the truth. But I was like, this is fascinating. So, I mean, I do think that it's a referendum. And also, I think, you know, what you see in past elections, particularly elections where the incumbent president lost, you do need some excitement. You do need excitement to get out the vote for people to feel like they're voting for the future. And so in that aspect, I think Joe Biden, because of his age and because of the lack of excitement among the Democratic base about his candidacy, then his vice presidential choice is really important. I mean, to me, we are picking definitely the next Democratic nominee because I don't think Joe Biden will run for a second term. And probably, you know, listen, I'm out here telling the future when I say we're terrible at that and it's bad. I mean, but, you know, at least a 25 percent chance but I think much higher, the next president and the first woman president. So that is a big deal. I just don't know because I don't look at the Democratic Party as it exists today and think, well, definitely that person will be then the standard bearer because you just see a willingness to primary people all over the place. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying objectively, I don't know that you look at today's Democratic Party and say it has been decided for you and feel comfortable about that. So I, if I were on the Biden team, I would be thinking more about this as some as a governance decision. Who is ready to actually step in and do this job mm-hmm. tomorrow if something happens to him? But that's electorally important, too. It's not just a go- You know what I mean? It is. And also, I just think trying to say and then who would be the right person to run, like, takes it to a level of pressure that no one can predict. 
and that I'm just not sure works the way the Democratic Party is operating today. And I think that's fine. You know, I I think taking that pressure off is probably good and healthy for everybody. Certainly more Democratic to think about it that way. So let's talk about some of the frontrunners. For a long time, it was Amy Klobuchar, but she has now announced that she is removing herself from consideration for the vice presidential. I think that's the absolute right, right call, considering George Floyd's death in Minneapolis and her home state of Minnesota and her past as a prosecutor. So absolutely the right call. So I think she was the front runner. Then I think you do see discussions of Elizabeth Warren, but I think her age comes into play. And I think at this moment in time, the idea that he would not pick a woman of color is really unlikely, possibly tone deaf, not the direction they seem to be going in. I'm sad that it has taken George Floyd's death and the deaths of other people and nationwide protest to get us around to we shouldn't have two white people on a ticket for the presidency. Well, I had that conversation before that, though. I definitely had conversations with other Democrats and on our and some of our social media where people were like, come on, we can't have two white people, even if one of them is a woman. So I will say that. Yeah, I'm just saying I think that should be our our standard going forward. Like, I just Mm -hmm. don't think anybody should run at the state or the national level on a ticket with two white people going forward. It's just not representative of America. Maybe that's not true in every part of American geography. But for the most part, we should we should have our leadership be representative of our communities. And if you look at his roster of possible candidates who aren't white, who are both women and not white, it's still a really good list, you know, and a long list. And so we're out of excuses in terms of, well, we don't have a good, you know, bench of people who could do that job. Yes, we do now. We do. Well, and I think the their emphasis on governance is why you see people who were really popular on that list, like Stacey Abrams, not in consideration as far as I can tell. And from the chatter that I'm seeing, I think like her experience as only a state representative is just it's not enough when you're talking about somebody that's going to be 78 on the first day they roll into the Oval Office. I think that we need people with more governing experience. I think that Val Demings, another name for those of you who don't know, she's a representative from Orlando, former police chief. She was on the impeachment team and she's amazing. But I wonder if that sort of lack of big federal government experience is hurting her. I don't know. I think she would be a great choice. When I look at the people who I think are his best options, they all have some type of executive experience because, again, mm-hmm. thinking about that, who can step right into this chair? So that's why, like, I think the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Bottoms, would, would not be a bad mm-hmm. choice. I think Val mm-hmm. Demings would not be a bad choice. That police chief experience is not like leading a city or a state, but it is still leading something that's pretty complex. I think the governor of New Mexico would be an excellent choice, especially because of her record on health care. I found a really good article about that that we'll put in the show notes if you don't know much about her. She's also been a member of Congress. So she's got a wealth of experience that I think could be really beneficial to him. And then I don't think you can have this conversation without talking about Senator Harris. And I wonder where you are on her. I think it's Kamala. I'm going to be honest. I think it's Kamala. I mean, when somebody put out a poll of Democrats and like, I'm like, I don't know who paid for that. But that to me is a big indicator that that's where it's going. I bet. I mean, I wonder if she paid for it. But I'm thinking, yeah, I think it's going to be Kamala. And I really I struggle with where I come down between, I would say, Val Demings or Kamala or someone like 
the mayor of Atlanta is, is it more important to us as Democrats that that person has been vetted because we had such an incredibly open and long primary process? Like, would people feel better about the fact that we went all through that and got Joe Biden if somebody that also went through that became the vice presidential running mate and they had that amount of vetting? Although I think you could also argue that the flip side of that is they were vetted and they came up lacking. You know, I think Kamala's campaign had some problems and she lost, she wasted some momentum, but she's also proven herself to be a fantastic campaigner in some respects, if maybe not just the head of a presidential campaign. Or is it more important that we go out there when it's somebody as well known as Joe Biden and give people a fresh face. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know. Somebody that that didn't get vetted through that process but is also not weighed down by that process. I think it's a tough call. I really do. Something that I would highlight about Senator Harris is that it would say a lot about the difference between what a Biden administration would look like versus a Trump administration that she ruthlessly attacked him and nearly ended his campaign in a debate. Mm -hmm. And then if he were to go on and choose her to be in this position, how comforting to know that we would have a president whose ego could stand to have people around who challenge him. I think with everything that's happened in the past couple of months, with the firing of the inspectors general, with the revolving door of administration officials, it would say a lot about Biden if he said, yes, Senator Harris is going to be my governing partner, even as she pushes me hard. Well, and here's something I was thinking about, too, with regards to him. I think with Joe Biden making this decision, and it's not like he's like making it himself with a notebook and a pencil, but, you know, ultimately he will make the call. And you're looking at someone who was one of the most active vice presidents in history deciding on a vice president from a very different perspective. I mean, even if you the last elected vice president was George H.W. Bush, but that was not an, you know, active governing partnership between him and Ronald Reagan. You know, he was chosen for some really electoral reasons. They had an acrimonious relationship, particularly their wives. A little side gossip there. And so I think that that I was thinking like, man, I would I would love to just like get him behind closed doors and be like, okay, so now that you were the like a very different kind of vice president, what you looking for? Like that's gotta be a really interesting perspective and factor as he makes this decision. And that he's wanted to be president for so long. So you know he has a very clear vision of how he wants to inhabit that office. I'm really curious to see where this goes. And at the same time, I'm just I'm not sure how much it matters. Because even as I know the Democratic Party is looking for a lot from this choice. Still, who you end up voting for in November and even the choice to show up seems to me to be so clear that that is hard for me to imagine that this person versus that person would have an enormous impact on the outcome. Okay, so today is primary day in Kentucky. And we have a very active Democratic primary. Now, again, another disclaimer. One of the candidates is Amy McGrath, longtime friend of the pod. She's been on our show. She was a guest at our live show. So we probably need to, you know, sort of be upfront and honest. 
that we have a personal relationship with her and that colors our perceptions. Yes, I am not at all unbiased in this conversation. And in that way, I have probably distanced from this primary a little bit because I get my feelings hurt for her. I get mad at people on her behalf. <laughs> I just I I really feel personally invested because not only have we done stuff with her on the show, but we have spent some time with her just as human beings talking that we didn't record. And I just believe in her. I think she is a person of great integrity. I think she is exceptionally cautious. I think she will read everything that is given to her to try to discharge her duties in this office well. I just think she is a really good person. And I rarely have the opportunity to know that about a person I'm casting my ballot for. Usually that's an act of faith. And when I got to vote for her this time, it wasn't an act of faith. You know, I felt really sure about who I was voting for. And that being said, it has gotten really contentious here on the Democratic side in Kentucky. I can imagine that Mitch McConnell's office is just having a field day because it's become so contentious. But in addition to Amy McGrath, who has been high profile from the beginning, Representative Charles Booker, who has become very high profile, particularly because of his leadership around the Black Lives Matter movement and in the wake of the killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville. We have another candidate who has been endorsed by Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson and has also been kind of a subject of conversation. So it's really been a surprisingly active ending to this primary. So I think I feel like we're like totally role reversal right now because I, despite, again, knowing her personally and really liking Amy, don't feel as emotionally invested as this and can kind of like sit back and realize and be honest about the fact that her campaign has made a lot of mistakes, including saying she would have voted for Brett Kavanaugh in the very beginning. I think that turned a ton of progressive voters in Louisville off and then kind of reversing herself on that. And again, I don't really even like saying she has because I don't know who was making these calls in her campaign. But at the end of the day, it is her campaign. And I think Charles Booker being out on the streets during the protest Not because I don't think it never felt or seemed like it was a political choice for him, but it was where he wanted to be as a black man that's grown up in Louisville, is raising a family in Louisville. And so when she was absent from those protests, I think that really slowed her momentum and increased his momentum even more. You know, what I think is so, so hard about this, I actually think the upside of, let's say, this is, that's sort of bad for Mitch McConnell is let's say Charles Booker has an upset. He spent so much money trying to pin negativity on Amy McGrath that would have been wasted. So silver linings. But it's really, really hard. And I think this our primary is reflective of a debate inside the Democratic Party, sort of what you were talking about before, which is. Did we did we take back the House in 2018 because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or did we take back the House because of Abigail Spanberger? Is it because we looked at red areas that were likely to flip and say, hey, we have national security backgrounds. We can be moderates. Um, We're not these. We don't want to abolish ICE and do Medicare for all at all cost and all these really progressive positions or. Is it because we came out and owned them and primary long-term Democrats? I mean, a little bit of both is the reality. But I think the debate right now inside the Democratic Party in Kentucky is which one of those strategies is going to work to defeat Mitch McConnell. 
And it's like, I'm really of two minds. In one way, look at our governor. He had a really progressive challenger in the primary, Adam Edelin, who lost. And there was not a lot of excitement about Andy. And there was this this undercurrent in the Democratic Party that he's just a boring moderate, a party regular, like all this sort of frustration and nastiness, particularly coming out of the hardcore progressive community in Louisville. And you can say what you want, and I can't tell you what would have happened if Adam Edelin would have won. But Andy won the primary and Andy won the governorship because I think there were a lot of Kentuckians that were just tired of the nastiness of Bevin, and he felt like a safe, moderate choice. And so I think that that's what we're talking about right now. Like, what's what's going to work to defeat Mitch McConnell? Do we want a moderate who is going to be more careful, or do we want a progressive who's going to fire up the base? And, you know, I don't really know the answer. I think some of it is the reality is that Mitch McConnell wins because he buries his opponent in a pile of money. And so I want to see who can raise money, who can go back at him. And I really honestly think either of them could. But, you know, who's if we're going to leave this very powerful man, this long term incumbent and say, we don't want the most powerful man in the Senate. We're tired of his politics. Like, what are most Kentuckians going to feel more safe voting for? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And I think some of it is how good of a campaign you run and how good of a fundraiser you are. And those are like very complicated calculuses to make for the average voter. But I I do think that our primary is reflective of this conversation that we're having inside the Democratic Party. Here's the other reality about our gubernatorial race. Kentuckians elected Governor Bashir and every other constitutional office Republicans took those offices by a lot, not by a little bit. And so it is some of those people were moderates. They weren't all like hardcore progressives either. So it's it is a tough road for anybody against Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. And what I hope can happen, however, this race ends up in the primary. I hope that all of that will can consolidate behind whoever wins because Taking Mitch McConnell out, I think, is even more complicated than defeating Donald Trump. Now, I was encouraged. We were driving through a very red part of Kentucky this weekend and on the side of the road where you would normally see like a billboard about how important uh, babies in the womb are was a big sign that said Mitch McCoverup. Ooh. Huge. I was shocked to see it. And I immediately thought, I wonder who paid for that. I want to know everything. (laughs) I have so many questions. But I do think there is a crack. You know, we get this question a lot. Can Mitch McConnell be beaten? I think there is a crack. I think there is an opening. But I think it's a Mm -hmm. teeny tiny opening. (laughs) I think it's really, really small. And that's why I've been trying to say to people, if you are watching this primary from afar, please just know it's an embarrassment of riches. We have a couple of people who would be infinitely better than Mitch McConnell here. And so ultimately, I would just like the acrimony from everyone to come down about that to say, whoever it is, we are full speed ahead here. Well, I also want to say we've gotten a couple of messages about the closing of polling places um, in Louisville and across the state of Kentucky. That happened, I believe, under our in part under our governor's direction because of COVID-19. And there has been 
at least in my area, well-publicized information and campaigns to say there will be one polling place or very few polling places. And so you can either vote by absentee ballot without an excuse or you can vote early in-person voting up until this point. So, yes, there are fewer polling places as there are in many parts of the country due to the pandemic. But the voters of Kentucky have had other options available to them for weeks. And I also wanted to say that the Kentucky Democratic Party is running a voter protection hotline throughout today. So if you're in Kentucky and listening to this on Tuesday, June 23rd, and you're having some sort of problem voting or have heard or have friends and family having a problem voting, then you can call 833-G-O-V-O-T-E-K-Y, Go Vote Kentucky, 833-GO-VOTE-KENTUCKY if you're experiencing any issues. I think this is one where national coverage has probably inflamed something that is not good here, but is somewhat manageable here. If you read the Courier-Journal, like the Louisville newspaper's coverage of this, it's it's a different tenor than some of the national paper's coverage of it, because what you have on both sides, even of a lawsuit about this, are people saying, we've taken some really good steps. And also, we're really concerned about COVID-19. And so in the face of believing that we've taken some really good steps and we're all worried about people getting sick, what is the right way to hold an election? And the State Board of Elections is saying, well, that's why we've only had one polling place, even in our largest counties, because we're trying to minimize the number of people who are actually going to vote in person. We're trying to put up a flashing sign, please use the other ways of voting. And the people on the other side of this lawsuit, including a Republican state representative who who led this lawsuit about wanting more polling places open, are saying, yes, but a lot of people, even though you did a good job with some of those steps on early voting and voting by mail, a lot of people still just aren't going to do that. And Mm -hmm. that's a really fair point. It is not the culture of our state to vote early and to vote by mail. And there's a long list of plaintiffs in this lawsuit who say, They just don't trust voting by mail. And I get that. We haven't done it in this state a lot other than just regular old absentee voting on this scale. We haven't done it. We do have reports that we're overwhelmed by absentee ballots. I imagine it's going to take a couple days for us to know the outcome of these primaries. It takes a while to to get people into a new way of voting. And even though we've tried to do a lot of that, running up to this primary and have done some good things, we probably haven't done enough and probably people will feel disenfranchised. And I imagine in Louisville, especially where the momentum around Representative Booker is especially strong, this could be a real cluster and it Mm -hmm. could be a problem for whomever wins that primary because you don't want questions about disenfranchisement as you come out of this contest. Amy McGrath's campaign tried to intervene in that lawsuit. Their motion to intervene was denied. It's really hard. I think this is a, a situation where it sounds super nefarious when you read a meme about it, but actually you have a lot of parties who've all been trying to do the right thing and you still have a bad result because it's a bad situation. So we are Obviously hoping for good, smooth voting in Kentucky. But either way, I think that this primary result will be important for everybody, Democrats in Kentucky and Democrats across the country to pay attention to. 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? We received the best message from Emmeline, who is 12. 
And she said, I've been hearing a lot about the problems in our country, and I have some ideas that I think could be useful in the political system. But as a 12-year-old, I do not know how to have any influence in the system. I wish I had the chance to help think of ideas with people who make decisions. When I get older, if I could be a mediator, I would want to work with Democrats and Republicans because both of their perspectives value good things. And if we combine them, we could get the best from both worlds. My mom listens to your show and thinks you might have ideas of who I could talk to or how I could get started now, even as a kid. So, Emmeline, this is not really outside of politics, but this captured our hearts because a 12-year-old who's ready to be involved, I love that. And I do think there are ways for a 12-year-old to be involved. And, Emmeline, I would start with writing a letter to the editor of your local paper about something that you think is important. And I would send a copy of that letter to the people who represent you in your state government, if that's what the issue is about, or in your national government, your uh, representatives in Congress. Um, but I do not think you should at all feel that because you are 12, you don't have ideas. We, we need exactly ideas from people who are 12 because you tend to see the world so clearly and without a lot of baggage that we have as adults. So I love this. I just want to offer to adopt Emmeline because I think that she's a blessing and I would like to have her for myself as my daughter, but I don't think she's up for adoption. So I guess that's probably not available to me, but I agree. Like, I think that the idea that kids can't vote or run for office means that they are not impactful. And I think it is the opposite. I think when kids speak, um, especially from real sincerity and authenticity and emotion about something that they're concerned about, adults tend to pay attention. I mean, look at Greta. Now, that does not mean that it comes with um, out some risk. Even in our polarized environments, I think kids can get swept up into that, which is really unfortunate. But I think for the most part, and especially in local communities, when kids speak, adults listen about these type of things because they are hungry for somebody without baggage or without a long political or partisan history to share their perspective. And so the world needs you, Emmeline, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And speaking of... Emmeline, if you write that letter and want to record you reading it in your voice, we would love to share it here with all of our listeners because I'm sure everybody wants to know what's on your mind. And also, Emmeline's mom, you're doing a beautiful job. Well done. So this fit nicely with something that I was thinking about. It's not necessarily outside politics, but it is a little bit, and it is hope. So I'm going to get a little emotional. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a really important voice to me. And I think it's because, you know, we tell the story on Pantsy Politics all the time of the fish and they're swimming along and the old fish comes up and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the two fish say, what's water? And I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is important to me because in many ways he showed me the water. His writing revealed things to me that it's not like I was ignoring race or either even deliberately ignorant to issues of race, but my perspective and my field of vision was so limited and he just cracked it wide open. And so I have an enormous amount of respect and trust and just emotional investment in his words. And he was on the Ezra Klein podcast. I was so excited to listen to it. And the first thing Ezra Klein asked him is, what do you see right now? And I wanted to share his response here with all of you. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but uh, I see hope and I see progress. 
uh, right now at, at this moment. Um, you know, I had an interesting call uh, on Saturday uh, with my dad. And, you know, my dad, born in 1946, grew up in, you know, just, just dirt poor in Philadelphia, lived on a truck, went off to Vietnam, came back, joined, joined the Panther Party, um, and was in Baltimore uh, for the 1968 riots, would have been about 22 at that, at that time, Vietnam vet. And I, I asked him if he could, for me, compare what he saw in 1968 to what he was seeing now. Um, and what he said to me was, there was no comparison. And actually, that this is much more sophisticated. And I said, well, well what do you mean? He said, it, it would have been like if somebody from the turn of the 19th to the 20th century could see the March on Washington. By which he meant the idea that Black folks in their uh, uh, struggle uh, against the way the law is enforced in, in, in their neighborhoods, which, you know, was so crystallized in, in the killing of, uh, in, in really the, 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 the killing by torture uh, publicly of George Floyd. The idea that that would resonate with white folks in Des Moines, Iowa, that it would resonate in Salt Lake City, that it would resonate in Berlin, that it would resonate in London, it was unfathomable to him. In 68, it was mostly Black folks uh, in their own communities registering their uh, great anger and, and, and great pain. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, overstate this and be too Pollyanna-ish, but I think it suffice to say that um, there are significant swaths of people in communities that are not Black that at least to some extent have some perception of, of, of what that pain and that, that suffering is. He said that and I just started to weep because I didn't realize how much I, I needed to hear from somebody that I trusted on race from a black American saying, no, it, it feels different to me because it felt different to me. But for a lot of reasons, I don't particularly trust my own perspective because I think as a white person, I can be, you know, sort of hungry for the positive, hungry for the we did it. And I don't think that's what he's saying. But hearing someone say, no, this is different. This is impacting in a way that nothing has before that felt like just so enormously hopeful to me. And I didn't realize how much I needed to hear that until I heard it. And so I think, you know, as we're looking to the future with the sweet, sweet babies like Emmalyn and thinking about America, especially as we move into an election cycle, just hearing the word hope and thinking about how much we we need that hope was, it was a lot. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. A little bit of hope goes a long way. We will be with you here again on Friday. We'll be talking about what's going on with the president's anticipated order on immigration and whatever else percolates this week. We're also going to talk about a wonderful bipartisan piece of environmental legislation that passed. And so be sure to join us on Friday. Remember that Wednesday on The Nuance Life, you can hear our um, pride commemorations. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Peace.
Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Our executive producers are Allison Luzader, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Barry Kaufman, David McWilliams, Emily Neasley, Janice Elliott, Jared Minson, Joshua Allen, Martha Branitsky, Sarah Ralph, Tiffany Hasler, Timothy Miller, and Tracy Putoff. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.